This episode of Above and Beyond is sponsored by Compassion International. To sponsor a child today, simply visit Compassion.com slash above. Cairo, Seattle. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I was Steve Largent. In fact, I vividly remember one of my first football memories was 1983. was a playoff game with the Seahawks and Raiders. And we happened to be visiting my grandparents over in Prosser, Washington. And it was a game uh, against the Dolphins. And Damon and I went out, my older brother Damon, and went in my grandparents' backyard. And we ran route after route. And I was somehow Steve Largent. And Damon's throwing me passes. Steve Largent was a guy whose story on the football field I followed as close as anybody's. I wanted to be him. I emulated him. He was part of our family growing up. And I get a chance to chat with him. And you're going to hear a story that I have never heard before. It's a story, unfortunately, like many in America today. There's a lot of resentment. There is a lot of brokenness in his home. And what you're going to hear is how the adversity so shaped his life. The adversity that he had growing up in a, in a broken home. How much of that fueled and created an edge in his career and an edge in his life, but ultimately something that he stood on the edge of and knew he had to address. And you'll hear the entire story right now. What was your upbringing, Steve? What was your home life like growing up? Well, it was um, interesting because my dad left when I was six years old. And my mom had three boys at that time. I was the oldest. um, And he took off. And so I had a brother that was four and a brother that was two. And, uh, And I basically didn't see him again until I was a senior in high school where I saw him for five minutes. And he gave me $100. I remember that. And then he came back when I was a senior in college. And um, at that time, I didn't know this at the time, but he was um, trying to figure out how much my scholarship was worth because my mom, he owed my mom a bunch of money because he had never paid child support. And uh, so he wanted to find out how much my scholarship was worth uh, to see if that would reduce the amount of money that he owed my mom. And so I don't know whatever happened with all of that because uh, she never said anything about it to me. But uh, so I saw him when I graduated from college, uh, just before I graduated from college. And then I basically didn't see him again until I started playing the NFL, uh, which is another year later. And if we went back and played a game on the East Coast, he was living in Philadelphia at the time, actually Bucks County, north of Philadelphia. Uh, He would come to the uh, games that we played on the East Coast, so New York or uh, Philadelphia, those kind of teams. And, and he would come and, uh, I'd see him there. And, and, you know, I, I had always been encouraged to try to embrace my dad, uh, which was really hard to do because I didn't know my dad. Uh, but he, I knew he was my dad. And so I just felt convicted that I needed to try to do that because my initial response was just to ignore him and uh, hopefully he'd go away. And, uh, he did go away. Um, but I didn't. I didn't ignore him. Uh, I didn't try to or- ignore him. Um, but it was a. It was. It was a difficult uh, relationship to say the least. It, it ironically, he was 66 years old. He lost his job that he had. He had a restaurant in uh, Philadelphia. He lost the restaurant. His third wife divorced him, and he moved back to Tulsa, which is where I was living after I was done playing. This was back in 1994, something like that. 95, 96. 
And uh, so I, again, tried to embrace him. We sent schedules of our kids, uh, baseball games and all that stuff. He never came to one. And he lived literally within one mile of where I lived at my house in Tulsa. And uh, he just never would come. And so uh, I tried to do as much as I could, but, you know, I couldn't force him to come to games or force him to come to dinner or anything like that. And he didn't. What the next call I got about him was from his sister, my aunt. And she said, your dad's had a heart attack and he's in the hospital. I said, I'm, 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 and the hospital was literally a mile and a half from where I lived. So I raced up to the hospital and, and saw my dad. And um, he had told the doctor, I didn't know this. He had told the doctor that if he had another episode, another heart attack, he didn't want the doctor to, to revive him. So while I was there, he had another heart attack and the doctor revived him. And he got so mad that the doctor revived him that the doctor said, okay, so if you have another one, it's, I'm done. No sooner had he told him that 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, he had another heart attack and he died. And I was there, uh, saw him. It was really, I mean, at that point I'm, you know, I'm 38 years old or something like that. I just thought, man, what a tragedy to live your life the way he did, uh, to end up on a bed with, you know, your son and your sister. Uh, and those are the only two people that seem to care about you and you're so bitter that you tell the doctors you don't want to be revived and i just thought yeah that's that is really really sad it was a um, very much a learning experience for me and a traumatic experience what did that impact growing up fatherless at that point or did did mom remarry the impact of that in your home growing up well there was a huge impact uh, because as i said my mom had three boys at that time me being the oldest and it was hard uh this this was back in the early 60s and she had to have a job because she had to support us because he wasn't supporting us um and she got a job and and uh, was working and you know basically the three boys were at home it was a struggle i mean a big night for us as a family, was on Friday night. She would take us to McDonald's, and we'd get a hamburger and Coke and French fries, and that was the that was the big deal in our family. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, but you know, it was it was it was tough. But you know, when you're a kid, you you, you don't know the difference. You know, you just kind of go. That's your life, and you live it, and you don't think about it. And that's kind of the way I did. And so it was really my mom who got me started playing baseball and started playing football and. Uh, that was, I started playing baseball when I was six years old, started playing baseball when I was nine years old, organized baseball and football. And, uh, I really loved it. And what ended up happening in my life really was that a lot of the coaches, uh, became very influential in my life because I, there was no dad there. Uh, and so that's just the way I, I got structured, uh, in my life is that my coaches were really heroes to me in my life and kind of a father figure for me in most cases, especially my high school coach and uh, my college coaches. Um, but you know, what what happened actually was uh, when I was 10 years old, my mom remarried. And I think she felt like she needed to be remarried. Uh, I don't think she wanted to be remarried. And I know now she didn't want to be remarried to the man she married. Mm. But she married him and she stayed married to him for 20 some years didn't take long to find out that he was a chronic alcoholic. Um, and so there was all kinds of times that I can tell you about, you know, playing uh, Easter egg hunts, finding bottles, you know, behind the TV, under the couch, all these places. And uh, he was a just a, uh, like I said, a chronic alcoholic who drank uh, vodka. I remember, never forget that. 
it was uh, not a good situation. Was there one memory there? You said you never forget it. He didn't get physical with my mom very often, uh, but I remember him coming in to, it was a Sunday dinner that my mom had fixed. So after, uh, normally people would go to church, we didn't go to church, but uh, came in to eat dinner Sunday at lunch and he was drunk and uh, my mom was kind of yelling at him and he was yelling at her and he went went to the table and he grabbed the ham that she had cooked in his hand and threw it at my mom across the kitchen. And I mean, we're just sitting there going, you know, this isn't supposed to be this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so really what I did was I, I just withdrew and uh, uh, kind of turned to my friends that I had and, and uh, coaches that I had. And that was kind of my world. And I just tried to ignore uh, the world that I lived in. You think this is where your fire came from? I remember when I was with the Seahawks, Steve, there were still stories about you of well, after practice, he would run these routes and he, there wouldn't be defenders. It wasn't just your buddy Zorn telling these stories. It was almost hallowed grounds of everything that you accomplished, set every record there when you were done as a Seahawk. Do you think some of that just work came out of the brokenness? No question about it. No, no question. It was really the competitive fire that was lit in my life from not having a father and uh, having to cut it on my own and do things myself um, that, that really created all the juices and the competitive flow and, and the, uh, just the uh, energy that I had to find something that I could say, I'm, I'm good at this, this game. And uh, sports was it for me. So baseball and football were uh, everything to me. My coaches were very important to my, in my life uh, for a lot of different reasons. And, uh, th- but there's no question about it. I, I don't think if, I think if my dad had not ever left and I had a whole family, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I would have played in the NFL uh, because I don't think, uh, I don't think some of the competitive juices that I had that enabled me to be as su- successful as I was in high school and college and then on into the NFL uh, spawned from uh, those experiences I had as a, a young kid. And I'm the son of a coach, and I saw the influence my dad had, just a web of influence as a coach in broken homes, in tough home environments. They did look to my dad as a real father figure in our community growing up. Was there a youth coach? Are there a couple that you can clearly point to that say, geez, this guy was was a father figure, he was a mentor, and any that really encouraged you in your faith journey? Uh, absolutely. There's one guy named Jerry Potter was my high school football coach, and he was really revered at my my school. Um, you know, we would have 180 kids come out to play football at Putnam City High School. It was the largest school in the state at the time. And uh, Jerry was the head coach. Uh, he was, like I said, he was revered until he died uh, about a year ago. He was still looked at as just a, you know, a patron saint of high school football. And that's what he was for me, too. It wasn't necessarily a lot of spiritual input from Jerry, but it was just the principles, the guidelines, the, the things that he taught uh, that you needed to be successful as a person and as a football player mm-hmm. that I'll never forget. You know, just talking about, you know, showing up on time. Uh, you know, doing your work, doing extra work to be successful. Uh, those kinds of things, uh, you know, I really I really credit to my relationship with Jerry Potter. Was it in high school that you did have some of that spiritual influence come into your life? Absolutely. It was uh, my sophomore year. I had not yet even turned 16. I turned 16 my sophomore year, uh, my, my sophomore year in September. I was invited by one of the seniors on the team uh, I was a sophomore. He was a senior. 
James Dunham is his name. I can't believe I remember his name, but he invited me to go to a uh, revival. And I'd never even heard of a revival. I didn't know what it was. I didn't grow up in church or anything like that. But yeah, he was going to go and there's some other senior football players there and some other guys were going to be there. And so uh, actually, I'd, I'd, I'd gotten my letter jacket because was, it was right after my sophomore year. And I had my orange Putnam City High School letter jacket on with a big big white oh, p absolutely i wore that to that <laughs> revival but uh i heard the pastor uh, say at that revival talk about you know uh giving your life to christ and and uh, turning your life over and being forgiven for your sins and uh, he talked about a big wall uh that is between us and god with a small door in it and that if you come to the door you can pass through it and know god and uh you know i'd never heard the story at all uh, not one time. Not one heard. time growing up. No, not at all. In all of those trials and tribulations at home and everything. None. No, not until I was 15 years old. Wow. And uh, I heard that message and it just resonated with me. And so, you know, I was sitting there right in the middle of all my friends on the left and on the right. They all had their jackets on and and the pastor was saying, hey, if, if, if you've heard God's voice uh, in this call, come forward. I, I knew he was talking to me. And I bet I had to step across the feet of all my friends that were there. And, uh, you know, it was hard. But I said, I got to do this. So I went forward and I prayed to receive Christ that night. And, uh, you know, I would say that that God changed my life dramatically over a long period of time. It wasn't a it wasn't just a a one night instant, you know, uh, type experience for me. It was uh, God began to change my life instantly, uh, but he did it over a, a long period of time. resentment was there bitterness i had a solid home i had so much structure you didn't was there bitterness and resentment that you were carrying through that that you felt maybe at that revival was released a little bit no it was still in me uh and i'd never i i, I didn't let go of it and I, I probably never let go of it until after i'd become a seahawk uh years later um and it was really that resentment that i had in my life that fueled a lot of the competitive fire that I had as a football player uh, because I felt like I needed to prove myself um, and I wanted to prove myself on the football field, on the baseball field. And so I competed, I fought, I did everything I, I could to be successful. Um, but it was it took me a number of years to release that resentment and, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't call it hatred because I don't feel like that I, I – had a that kind of a spirit but it was uh resentment for sure walk me through that a little bit faith in sports right Mm. so the fire that we all saw Mm -hmm. oh did we ever see that fire flare when you came back and you knocked that guy out who was it mike harden (laughs) mike harden oh yeah you did (laughs) but help me walk and understand that competitive fire and that juice and maybe someone listening it's got a kid out there so how do you have that competitive grit and that will and that fire and, and sometimes fueled by resentment yet also walk in our relationship with Christ, how do those intersect? They, they didn't intersect very well, to be honest with you. Partially, it was resolved when I became a Seahawk, 
working with uh, Norm Evans and Jim Zorn and Sherman Smith and Dave mm-hmm. Brown and all these just really great, great guys and, and great believers. And uh, that helped me a lot dealing with some of the resentment that I had in my life that I was still playing with. Uh, but it wasn't until I actually went to Congress and uh, started meet with some guys back there. And and uh, we had a little uh, group that met together and uh, we, we kind of came together every Tuesday night and uh, that we were in session. And, and uh, one of the guys there, a guy named Marty Sherman, uh, he works for the National Prayer Breakfast and the fellowship. And I started talking about the resentment that I had towards my dad. And he said, you know, really, you, you, you've got to learn to let it go. Uh, you've got to learn to, to forgive your dad and, um, and, and move forward. He said, because the person that's going to kill is you, you, you know, you, you think that this animosity that you have, uh, is aimed at your dad, but it's really affecting you mm-hmm. and your ability to, uh, connect with other people. And so that's what I did. And, uh, is, is I just took the time right then to just ask the Lord, forgive me for having the resentment for, uh, having that kind of resentment towards any individual, but especially my own dad. And really that it was after that time that I, I began to rebuild a re- my relationship with my dad. Mm. Uh, and about that time he moved back to Tulsa. So, uh, there was a lot of opportunity to do that, but there was no response on his end. But the thing about it is, is that, and this is what Marty was telling me is that, you know, you need to learn to forgive your dad for your benefit not necessarily for your dad's benefit, because it may or may not affect the way he mm. uh, accepts you, loves you, interacts with you, but it will definitely affect you. And he was absolutely right. It did affect me, and it affected me in a positive way, because it was like it, I, I was released mm. from all the bitterness, all the hatred, all the uh, animosity that I had in me. Um, and, and it was a, a really freeing experience that I had. And this was years after I prayed to receive Christ, right. but uh, you know, it, it just really took some some really close friends that were uh, c- closely connected to me to tell me the truth about what I needed to do. And uh, it obviously took a long time too, because at that point I'm, you know, I'm forty some years old and uh, dealing with this in Congress, and uh, they were absolutely one hundred percent correct. What's the encouragement then to others in the sense, Steve, of man, you carried that for a long time. Yeah. And some would say, maybe even listen to this, like, hold on a second. I mean, that fuel, that anger, that wrath, look what it did. Yeah. Got you a gold jacket. Mm-hmm. It got you seven Pro Bowls. Help me understand where some of that encouragement is, some of that freedom of that, when from a worldly perspective and a competitive perspective, man, you accomplished just about everything. Yeah. Wait, there's no question that it, um, it definitely enabled me to be successful on the football field. But it wasn't the kind of success that I feel like uh, is important for people to have. Did it fulfill you? No, no, I, I never felt fulfilled. Uh, I always, there was always still the hunger for more and to do it again. And I think it was just, you know, it was, it was a resentment that I was carrying. And, uh, you know, it actually felt good uh, when you got a good hit on somebody uh, or you made a big catch and caught a touchdown or whatever. Uh, that felt good. And, I, and I, I think what it was was there was resentment in that, but there was also still this burning desire in me to please my coach, uh, to please you know the person that the father figure in my life at whatever stage I was playing, whether it's college, high school, or professionally. And what I learned really, uh, Brock, was that you know there's only one father I answer to, and that there's nothing that I do on the football field that 
pleases him as much as just having my heart. And that was really the lesson that I needed to learn, uh, was this not about pleasing anybody, uh, but, but pleasing the Father. When I kind of put all those pieces together, and like I said, I was over 40 years old when that happened, um, it, it, it felt like I, I just would breathe a sigh of relief because I felt like all this stuff I was carrying on my shoulders, I was finally free of it. And there was really a sense of peace um, and joy in my life that I'd never experienced before. Now, I, I was a believer from the time I was 15 years old till I was 40, but it took me to get to 40 years old before I was able to really be free of uh, the background and the crooked way of thinking that I had I had. Uh, led myself into. Yeah, I really hope that's encouragement for some of you that are tuning in, that it's not instantaneous. That that brokenness, your home wasn't meant to be that broken. Mm. You weren't meant to have a dad to leave. You weren't meant to have an alcoholic stepdad come in. Yeah. There was a lot of baggage. There was a lot of pain. And it didn't take a month or a year. It took, in your case, what did you just say? Almost 20 years, yeah. 25 years to help unpack that. Mm-hmm. To me, that's incredible encouragement to those that you know, and you're around it and you saw it throughout your whole political career as well. Yeah. And even now, the brokenness that so many face out there, yeah. it's got to be an encouragement. Well, yeah, I, and I hope it is, but I would tell you that all three of my brothers didn't have the same end. Uh, I had another brother. My next brother was Doug. Uh, he died when he was 27 years old. He was a police officer, ended up getting encephalitis uh, from horses he was riding as a police officer, and uh, he died. Had two children, a wife and two kids. Uh, and then my youngest brother, Craig, who was a half-brother because he was my mom and my stepfather's child, uh, he died when he was 45 uh, from drug overdose. You know, I, I feel like in a lot of ways the Lord has spared me for some reason, I don't know why, it doesn't always end happily, uh, unfortunately. It's interesting, Steve. You and I um, separated in some years as Seahawks, yet, man, some of the men that you mentioned earlier have been such rocks, both in the community, in that organization. You're drafted in the fourth round out of Tulsa, where you were All-American, had a bunch of records. You're drafted in the fourth round, yet traded to an expansion team. Yeah. And that expansion team ended up having a Jimmy Zorn, a Norm Evans, a Sherman Smith, eventually a Ken Hutcherson. Dave Brown. Dave Brown. Bless his heart and rest his soul. Some incredible men of substance and faith. How did that shape you? Well, there's no question it did. We we had an incredible uh, fellowship on that team. And I think think the influence was felt by the whole team. and, you know, I, I'm really, uh, I, I think about those times with those, those men so often as I've, you know, developed as a football player and developed as a, as a man and think of the influence that they had on me and just, just the way they lived their lives and uh, the way they talked to me, the way that the things that they believed in. And there was hardship. I mean, in some ways, I guess almost that Seahawk arc is similar to your, your story arc in your life. Yeah. There's hardship in the mid seventies, not a lot of wins. Yeah. Chuck Knox comes around and all of a sudden, man, this city started to take off. Yeah. It I mean, really it's, did. it's got the twelves now. It was the 12th man then. And that kingdom roof used to blow off and you guys, you turned it, you turned it. How? Well, I think, I think 
Chuck's leadership uh, obviously is a uh, the the principal factor. I mean, he came in with a plan. Uh, he had a defensive scheme. He had an offensive scheme that he wanted to execute. And really, ironically, I think the offensive scheme that Chuck Knox really wanted to have was to run the ball, you know, fifty times and throw it five times. But uh, we did we weren't fortunate enough to be able to do that. But we drafted Kurt Warner then in nineteen eighty three, Chuck's first year, and uh, we became a different team. And it was uh, it was really fun, very exciting. Uh, the first year we make the playoffs uh, in uh, 1983, we go. I think we were nine and seven, and uh, we made the playoffs. We were a wild card team, and uh, that was the year we actually made it all the way to the AFC Championship game against the Raiders, who we beat twice in the regular season, and uh, we lost to them, but down in uh, L.A. And uh, but still, uh, it it just was uh, an incredible experience to play. Play for Chuck and and uh, to look at the coaching staff that he had and the players on the team and uh, we just had a tremendous experience. When did you know you had a chance to be a Hall of Famer? You know, I, it wasn't anything I ever thought about. I, I never thought I could play in the NFL. Uh, I wasn't sure I could play in the NFL. And then to think about it being a Hall of Fame, I never thought about it until after I was done playing. And uh, you know, then every, you know people would introduce me as being a surefire Hall of Famer. But you know, you got to wait five years, and you don't know. Mm-hmm. And then to be inducted on the 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 first year, the first opportunity I had uh, after after the five years that I sat out um, was an incredible experience. How did Dad and stepdad receive you, watch you, live with you through now? A- so much worldly success and so much fame on the field. Well, my stepdad was never really a part of what I did. He didn't come to any of the games, not, not very many games that I played in, and uh, was never a part of my life for that matter. Wow. My my dad did come to a few games uh, when I got into the NFL, particularly, as I said, on the East Coast. And uh, I think he was really proud. And, you know, one of the things I was talking about my dad earlier, but one of the things that was really hurtful to me was um, when we would go to a game, he'd call me and say, hey, we're going to come to your game and I'll, I'll need a room at the hotel. Can you get me a room? I said, sure, I can get you a room. And so I'd tell the front office, hey, can you get a room for my dad? He's going to come to the game in Philadelphia or come to the game in New York. And so I'd get and And the last game that I played – uh, I think the last time I played on the East Coast as a Seahawk is 1989. I think Philadelphia was that game because we played that game the first game of the year, mm-hmm. and uh, I broke my arm that game. Mm-hmm. But he came to that game, and he never paid his bill. So the Seahawks come to me and said, hey, Steve, we got a little problem here. I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but your dad didn't pay for his bill. I said, okay. So I, I, I paid it. It was not – a heavy lift for me, but it was just a reminder, kind of yeah. a painful reminder of you can't change a spot on a dog or something. Yeah. You know, it, it was it was tough. It's humbling for me as, I, as you're telling these stories because I think we've watched movies, yeah, right. We've watched movie characters. We've watched the alcoholic dad and Hoosiers, yeah, Dennis Hopper, right. Yeah. We have seen these stories of absentee dads, and sadly, we hear a lot of them. And I know in your political career, I am sure, as you traveled the country and you dug in, you saw a lot of those absentee fathers. And what was the profound impact of that for you then who became a dad of four? 
You know, I've tried to share my story with as many young people as I can. Uh, I was spoke at a high school in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, my hometown, uh, just the other day. And, and you know, the, the sad part is, is that there's more kids that are coming from those types of situations, uh, you know, divorced parents or no parent at all, uh, no father at all. And it, it really, I think, I, I think it's sad because I, I know the pain that those kids feel. Uh, but I try to talk to them and, and just relate to them, you know, positive stories of encouragement uh, to try to lift them out. But, uh, you know, ultimately, to me, um, the only answer that I had was Jesus. And uh, that's the only answer that I can give to them uh, and, and talk to them about the love of God and, and uh, how much he cares about them. story norm evans mm-hmm. and norm obviously was one of the founding fathers of pro athletes outreach yep. uh, a ministry still alive today steve stenstrom now runs it out of colorado and such and i remember so vividly going to a pao conference one of the first ones when i was a young player and i was sitting with my wife jackie kendall she was uh, a speaker at this conference and as you know, you would break up into little small groups, right? So they'd have these different presenters and, and I'm going to help you with finances or I'm going to help you with your marriage right. or I'm going to help you with, and different folks who majored in these different topics. And Jackie's was on forgiveness. And I remember she presented, and boy, I think I've told you this story before. She presented on that first night as all the presenters, so you could kind of pick which conference or which little break off group you want to go to. And I turned to my wife and I said, what is she doing here? Like her messaging, her energy, her it was like all over the place. And I, here I am, this like judgmental Christian, like, how is she going to reach these NFL guys? Like, this is just, I mean, I, it's just awkward, right? And I have this horrible judgmental thought that first night. And ultimately, I didn't go to any of her breakouts, but I could hear whispers like, oh man, Jackie's unbelievable, and Jackie this, and Jackie that. And then the last night, they have open mic. And it's an open mic night for everybody to get up there and just, what did hit? What hits you? You know, we we did an outreach at the prison, and the women went to the uh, homeless shelter and the abuse shelter, and we, you know, have these incredible times in just small groups and just just breakthrough, really amazing stuff. <laughs> in this conference in particular, I remember player after player getting up to the open mic, big guys, huge men, sobbing, and they said, "Jackie, stand up." You know, and Jackie would stand up and. They'd look at her and, I mean, tears streaming down their face like, I got to do this, don't I? And she's just like nodding like, you do. I've got to ask forgiveness of my father or my uncle who abused me, who I, you know, who I never have forgiven. And I've been buried in this unforgiveness for decades. And I got to let it go, don't I? And she just wouldn't say a word. And I'm like sobbing, like, what am I doing? Here I am, this judgmental punk, you know, from Puyallup that had a wonderful upbringing and parents that loved him and cared for him. And here's these men, I mean, hulking NFL men who are just in tears that I got to let go, don't I? You know, and it just was a reminder to me how powerful that forgiveness can be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How powerful that can be. And even in your life when 
dad wasn't there, when dad was a deadbeat, when stepdad was an alcoholic, you still got to let go. Yeah. You still got to find a way to forgive. You do. Because the person that you free up is yourself. And that's that was the great discovery that I had when I was 40 years old is that, you know, it wasn't my dad that I was setting free by apologizing to him or, or forgiving him. It was myself that I that needed that, that I needed to be set free. And uh, it was a it was a, just a tremendous experience in my life. No hard feelings with dad. Still to this day, no hard feelings. Yeah, no, no, I have no hard feelings towards my dad. Uh, if you were alive, I would be saying the same thing. Uh, I feel like that I've dealt with that in my life, and uh, you know that pain of him leaving. Uh, you know that's that's that. You know any resentment or, or animosity that I had has been lifted from me. But that's that's the Lord did that. No hard feelings with the upbringing, the challenges in the home. I wouldn't wish my upbringing on anybody. Uh, so that that's not good, and uh, that that is a painful thing that, like I said, too many kids are having to experience on their own uh, now. But um, you know, I, I think I think for me, I learned from it. Um, uh, I met the Lord through that experience, and uh, I, I wouldn't want to go through it again, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody else. But at the end of the day, I think it, it worked out okay for me. Does that experience? then push you into politics a willing candidate yeah, an unwilling candidate actually <laughs> i'd actually said when i retired in 1989 there were several reporters that asked me well what are your plans for the rest of your life and i said i don't know what i'm going to do i think i have a lot of opportunities but i know two things i don't want to do i don't want to coach and i don't want to be in politics and i said that and it's part of the public record uh, but my wife is the one who started working on me, uh, and it turns out that we were living in a, a part of Oklahoma that didn't that that our representative, his name's Jim Inhofe, he's now in the Senate, was going to run for the Senate, and uh, he was going to leave his post in the first congressional district, and you know, so it was an open seat, and this was in May, so and the elections in July, so we're talking like two months, three months later, and I said Terry, you know that that's there's not enough time. She goes, I think you need to do it. And so I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to put my name on the ballot, and uh, I'll put some of my money behind me. And if we win, great. If we don't, then we never want to have this conversation again, right? And so she agreed. And so I ended up running for Congress uh, in 1994, and it was a seven-way primary in the Republican primary you know, in Tulsa. And uh, so – in the primary, you have to get 50% plus one vote in order to avoid a runoff. Well, I wasn't thinking about getting 50% in a seven-way primary. I just wanted to be one of the last two. Right. Uh, and so I, I, I worked hard, and I had 250 volunteers that were willing to walk all over Tulsa and wow. you know, say, vote for Steve. And, and so I was doing that as well. And we had a pretty a good campaign, a lot of fun in our campaign. And, uh, you know, I didn't. I didn't even know half the issues that we were talking about, uh, but I did know that I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be a congressman that was going to represent the district and um, and and uh, you know try to put forward some ideas that I had about limited government and so forth, and uh, it, it caught fire, and so it ended up in the primary that was in I think July twenty third in nineteen ninety four. I got fifty percent plus one vote in a seven-way primary, and, and I was amazed. So I went in the general election and ran against a guy who had never been run for Congress either mm. in the oil and gas industry, and he kind of had didn't have a great reputation, uh, and I, I didn't know it. I didn't know him. Mm. But uh, I ran on the things that I believed in, and uh, it turns out I got 63% of the vote on the election. More challenging 
in a faith journey in the sports landscape or the political landscape? Well, for me at that point in my life, I would say there was more challenges in the political realm. When I got elected to Congress, um, you know, it was a big change and a change, in a kind of a landslide ele- election in 94. And Republicans were in the majority in the House and the Senate for the first time since 1954. And so it was a it was a sea change election, and I was in it. And so it was kind of a fun deal uh, to get to serve not only in the House but to serve in the majority, and uh, just to watch the changes and meet the people and um, you know on both sides of the aisle and uh, just just see. Uh, I, I learned a lot about uh, humanity. I learned a lot about people. I learned mm-hmm. a lot about our form of government. I uh, came to appreciate our form of government uh, a great deal, but um, it was a, a fascinating experience. But spiritually, I think that it was those those few guys that I met with the entire time I was in Congress and even beyond that mm. uh, that had a, a real effect on my life of understanding the faith that I already had. And uh, part of it was, you know, this idea about being reconciled with those that you don't yeah. feel reconciled with. Yeah. And uh, that, that really made a, a big impact on my life. Freed you up? Uh, totally. Totally freed me up. And now what? Well, you know, I, I, I left office uh, to run for governor, lost that race in uh, 2002. Didn't really know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, uh, but didn't feel pressured to be back in the job market. Uh, but I got a call from the trade association with the wireless industry, and uh, they called and said, hey, we want, to, we want to interview you to see if you want to be uh, the president and CEO of this organization. And uh, I didn't know a lot about the business community, but I knew quite a bit about the wireless industry because of Sailor One here in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Jim Zorn and I had been two of the spokespeople for Sailor mm-hmm. One right here in Seattle. And so we had bag phones. So I, I had been kind of a follower of the sailor industry for some time. And uh, I went back and interviewed for the job. And I called my wife right after the interview. They had interviewed probably, there were probably 12 or 13 people they were interviewing. And this was all the CEOs of you know, Sailor, uh, what Singular was the name of AT and T Wireless and Verizon and all Sprint. All those guys are the CEOs were in the room, and uh, I, I I I went through the process and I called my wife immediately after I uh, interviewed with them. I said, Terry, I said you better get ready because I think I got the job, mm-hmm. and I don't know what made me say that, but I just felt so confident in yeah. in that interview. Um, and so it turns out that that's exactly what happened. So Scott Ford, who was the president, uh, or the chairman of the board at that time, flew his plane from, uh, Little Rock to, um, to Tulsa and we negotiated a contract and I was on my way to Washington Mm. again, Mm. uh, to work in, in the wireless industry. Was there moments that you could really say, man, I would have never handled that that way. Had I not been freed up the way I was, had I not felt that forgiveness? That mm-hmm. makes sense? Yeah. Well, it was probably not long after Marty Sherman, my friend in Washington, D.C., told me about uh, the idea of, uh, of reconciliation that uh, this happened. Uh, we had a vote that was taking place on the House floor, and it was a critical vote, and they weren't sure they had enough votes to pass the legislation. And the legislation was to increase funding for one particular uh, uh, committee on 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 in, in the House, mm-hmm. and of course this was a committee that was controlled by Republicans, and we're you know supposed to be voting for 
the Republican things. And I just said, you know, that's not right. You know, I came to Washington to reduce the amount of money that Washington's spending, not increase the amount of money that Washington's spending. And there were 11 of us who voted against that bill on the floor that day. And it was that night that Newt Gingrich called a meeting of all the Republicans in the House of Representatives. And we were to report uh, to that meeting as like 9 o'clock at night. And we were being called on the carpet. And he said, I want the 11 of you that voted against this bill to come up and explain to the rest of the your colleagues why you voted no, uh, because we need to pass this legislation. And so I didn't know what he was going to do, but he actually called roll of every Republican in the House. That was the first time and only time that happened the entire time I was there. I was the first one to the microphone to talk. And I told him exactly why I voted no. I said, I, I wasn't sent here to increase funding in Washington. I was, I was called to decrease funding in Washington and to bring some common sense to the way Washington works. And this bill's going the other direction. And uh, then several other guys got up after me and kind of said the same thing. And uh, it was really, that was the beginning of the fall of Newt Gingrich. He mm-hmm. was out of office probably within two years of that that mm-hmm. vote. And, uh, you know, so just really, I think it was one of those times that was a galvanizing time in my life where my faith and my beliefs were all coming together uh, to, you know, uh, give a rationale for why I'm in Washington and why I'm voting and mm-hmm. why I ran for office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, a, that was a, a, a seminal moment in my life. The most powerful faith encouragement that you can give. There's a youngster listening to this story and like, yeah, Steve, I know, ma'am, I don't have a dad. Or there's a, a, a mom whose dad, whose husband was a, is a deadbeat that left mm-hmm. and uh, is trying to do it on her own and raise kids. And, and you've seen them all across the country. Most powerful encouragement when it comes to some of that reconciliation and faith yeah. to them would be yeah. what? Well, I think, first of all, you have, to, you have to talk about your faith. And you have to understand that there's a God who loves you and that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And if you can accept that, receive that, uh, that he wants to to help you uh, mm-hmm. and be all that you can be. And a piece of that being all that you can be is learning to be reconciled uh, with others. And like I said, in my, in my case, it, 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 reconciliation is about you taking care of your life and being reconciled with people that you've had a disagreement with or argument with or uh, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so, and, and that's important for you, not necessarily, they, they may not ever reconcile with you, but you need to be reconciled with them. And I think that's a real important piece of, of your faith in the Lord. And it was, it was in my life. And this is about forgiveness. I mean, really your message and your testimony and your story as much as anything yeah, is about forgiveness. I think, I think you're right. And, and, you know, I don't know where I'd be without it. Well, thanks so much for listening once again. I love your tweets. It really means an awful lot to me. You can follow me on Twitter, at Brock ESPN, and it means so much to those who've participated in it. I've, I've talked to John Kitna and Coach Dungy, to Matt Hasselback, and I'm encouraged, they're encouraged. And if you feel like this is a 
message that you want to share, share it. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. And you can go to iTunes as well. It helps us reach a bigger audience if you go leave a review on iTunes. And this has been one of the most fulfilling ventures I've done in media in almost 10 years now. And it's because you all are a part of it as well. Thank you.